This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview, intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. Eric Zayla is the director of Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Adaptation. <laughs> it's a 1989 fan film that was a shot-for-shot remake of, of course, Indiana Jones and Steven Spielberg's film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now this was made by three childhood friends. We're going to talk about, there's three characters that you need to know in this. We spoke to Eric, but also Chris Strompolis and Jason Lamb. They were also involved, and we're going to get into their characters a little bit. But first... Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, became a bit of a cult classic. And what ended up happening is there was a documentary. It's now available on Netflix. I've watched this documentary. It's brilliant. Here's a little trailer of that documentary. I don't know how to explain this, but it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, remade shot for shot by 11-year-old kids in 1982. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Raiders of the Lost Ark is a big blockbuster on a big Steven Spielberg mm. budget. How on earth... Do you manage that on a kid's allowance, doing it in your backyard and doing it? Those were film experts that you heard there doing it pretty well, all things considering. I mean, what they were working with was really remarkable. And as I mentioned, there's three main characters to this story. There's Eric, who we're hearing from Chris. Now, Chris is kind of the boisterous ideas man, to give you a sense of who he is. He's (laughs) the one who's a bit flamboyant, likes to be the center of attention. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Rob. I'll take that as a compliment. Eric, no, it is meant to be one. Yeah. Eric, meanwhile, is more the quiet. He's the measured, sensible one who's really determined, meticulous, determined to get the details right. Now, Jason is something of a mad scientist. And Robbie. you'll find out why this is relevant soon. Because, you know, he was on the one hand brilliant and helped them work their special effects to the point where they were really quite impressive. And on the other hand, sometimes missed some details that caused some issues. So this will become relevant as we tell this story. So it's 1982. Raiders of the Lost Ark had come out in 1981. You have 12-year-old Eric Zayla sitting on a school bus. He's got an hour-long commute. So usually he says he used to sit there and do his homework. He used to look out the window. But then this one particular day, he sees another kid who he doesn't know reading an Indiana Jones comic book. And Eric himself is a huge comic book fan, and he's a massive fan of Indiana Jones. So he does something a little bit out of character. So, hey, um, can I borrow your comic book? He'd done... He'd finished reading it and said, yeah, sure. That kid was uh, Chris. We were complete opposites, but we both loved Raiders. And just that, uh, that happenstance, that random moment led to about oh, a year later when Chris got the idea to remake Raiders. He remembered that quiet kid from the bus and uh, looked me up in the, uh, in the phone book. Uh, they had those back in the 80s. And... Uh, gave me a call out of the blue and said, hey, I'm, uh, do you remember me? You borrowed my Raiders comic book on the bus. Oh, yeah. I'm doing a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders the Lost Ark. Do you want to help? What ends up happening is Eric gets this call. Do you want to make, do a remake? And Eric, even as a 12-year-old, okay, this gives you a sense of who he is, is thinking, okay, well, he must already have some, you know, some sets set up. He must have a little bit of a team already behind this. And I'm sure he's kind of, I'm just going to come in and just help out a bit. Yeah, sure, why not? Of course, it turns out 
And we've already heard the type of character Chris is. That is absolutely not the case. Nothing is set up. This is just some harebrained scheme that Chris has, just some sort of idea that he's thrown out there. Eric has involved himself at this point in something that would change his life and would take up every single summer of the next seven years of his life. He had no idea what he was in for. I did ask him also, like, why Raiders? Why was this such an important film in particular to you guys? And he said... Back, you know, it was it was rooted in a time somehow they felt in their world. It was so adventurous. And he said he described it as a movie that split his brain in half. That's how moved he was. And I could sense that even talking to him now as a 50 year old man, he has the same sense of that film that you imagine he would have when he was 12 years old. So they decide they're going to make this shot by shot. I'm not talking a general gist. I'm talking about every specific camera angle. They need a plan. But again, this is the 80s. You can't just download the movie and watch it and then sort of do your storyboard, right? How do they go about doing a storyboard when they don't really have that much access to the film? I I drew 602 storyboards, recreating each shot. And it was, um, I'd seen the movie once in theater. And then um, once again, the following year, when it was re-released in theaters. And by that time, Chris and I teamed up to capture the sound effects and uh, the music. I, <laughs> sorry to say, committed copyright infringement and snuck an audio tape cassette recorder into the screening. Chris had attempted this and was busted, but I guess I looked more innocent. So I managed to sneak my uh, cassette recorder in there and I recorded the movie and Sure, I, I was very excited to listen to it uh, when I got home. Yeah, there was like audience cues and had the, the soundtrack and everything. It was very muddy recording, but what was helpful was as a memory jog. So for an entire summer, I would have a routine where I would splay out over the entire dining room table every photograph we could get cobbled together of Raiders from like trading cards, the storybook, comic book, the insert of the photo album, and I would plug in this recording, put on headphones, close my eyes, and imagine uh, the movie. I'd really seen it, I think, two, maybe three times in the theater at that point. I was able to let the movie work its magic into me. This is making me very nostalgic, I have to say. The magic of a comic book. Do you remember that? When you would get a comic book from the newsagent, when you were 10 or 11, and it was, it was just the best thing ever. Yeah. And I asked him, you're 12 years old. What do you know about filmmaking, <laughs> right? How do you even begin to approach this? Why uh, the mall, of course. <laughs> went to uh, the mall bookstore and to the film and TV section, and I uh, consumed as many books as I could on um, directing. Watched uh, The Making of Raiders Lost Ark on PBS at the time, and tried to, uh, you know, the uh, coffee table book uh, on industrial light magic on how they did uh, special effects. You do what you can, but you kind of make it up as you go. Accordingly, we chose the first scene to shoot the jungle scene. So um, I remember that day, uh, neighborhood kids we had recruited to play the Havitos. So uh, a caravan of, of cars appeared one morning in my mom's driveway, dropping off kids that we assembled on the front porch and uh, uh, dressed them in grass skirts and, uh, and rabbit pelts. And Jason got out his fishing tackle box, which he used as a makeup kit, and did them up in uh, Havito war paint. One of my darkest moments as director, when we all gathered around the TV at the end of the day and, and watched back uh, the footage, and it looked horrible. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was grainy, jittery, blurry. Um, there was a big A in the left, top left at the corner, burning to all the shots mysteriously. What do you do? You know, at that point, it was a real turning point. Give up or press on? And um, we decided to press on. Not only did they decide to press on, they realized that whole first summer of footage, they had to trash it. It was no good because it was all learning curve. It was only later on after scene after scene after scene that, and recreating the same thing over and over again, trying to get it right, that they realized lighting was important. They kind of learned along the way how to get the lighting right. But that meant all but one scene they had to trash. You think of certain scenes in that film zone and you wonder how on earth they embarked on doing that. How on earth they did it and also on no budget. You heard there before saying he did it on their allowances. I mean, I don't know what your allowance was <laughs> growing mine up. Covered a couple of sweets from the news agent exactly so they just ravaged their their parents closets in fact there's obviously a jeep scene a car scene a lot of people remember where there's a chase scene at the end a lot of action involved in that they found the jeep in a swamp and they just pulled it out the jeep had no motor actually so it always had to be pushed from behind how on earth did they find a jeep in a swamp yeah i mean it's an interesting story but another thing is let's talk about how they recreated certain scenes because you'll also remember there is a scene in nepal where Mm. indiana jones walks into a bar and a fight ensues yeah that's right he has to get the medallion off off marion an old flame of his and that's when the nazis show up there's a fight and essentially the whole bar gets set on fire but yeah. not just the bar the, a person too goes oh, up my. in flames and you think there's no way they're going to try to do this and they had a guy from the neighborhood playing this particular character and Eric as the director said there's no way I'm letting him put himself at risk so force he stands in I stunt doubled for him and put on a fire retardant raincoat beneath my costume huh, you know safety first and costume, which was, I think, Chris's grandmother's shawl or something, turban, fake beard. And while we used isopropyl rubbing alcohol through most of the pyrotechnics in the small basement room that was dressed up as a Nepalese saloon, uh, for whatever reason, I asked the guys to douse my back with gasoline that day. Figured I wanted to be really spectacular. Oh, uh, what was I thinking? But I remember um, calling action and crouching and standing up and firing and, and the little kid with a lit torch hiding behind the bar, little Jimmy Shambo, came in and lit me just off green. I stand, scream, ah, 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 turn and hold. And then I call cut. And as planned, two kids rush forth with smothering blankets and throw the, the blankets on my back. And being a little anxious to see if they succeeded in putting me out, almost immediately removed the blanket. Oh, he's still on fire. All right, blanket on, off, on, off, fanning the flames higher. (laughs) About that time, it feels like uh, an electric blanket on my back turned up really high, this tremendous building heat, and uh, I guess it started to burn my hair, sticking it from the back of uh, my turban, and the small basement room fills with the awful smell of burning hair. I'm starting to get nervous at this point. <laughs> in our outtakes, you can actually see the kid setting me a flame, finally going to plan B and picking up the fire extinguisher, reading the instructions, pull pin. 
Chris finally gets the initiative to uh, to run, rush forth and grab a blanket and throw me to the ground and, and have me roll over and, and I'm put out and I'm okay. The real danger seemed to follow to us later when a, uh, a local TV station worker spotted us reviewing our footage there at the studio and uh, called our moms. And so there was a meeting of the moms. No more fire. And so we were shut down for the summer. And um, I remember Chris's mom saying, why can't Indy just hit the bad guy with a, a big sack of leaves? Sack of leaves? Mom, you don't understand. <laughs> you may... Um, Recall, we kept none of the first year's footage except for one shot. And as you might expect, that was uh, that shot. Uh, however, the following summer, things had cooled down, literally and figuratively speaking, and we found a way to lift the band on fire with the moms. Two words, adult chaperone. We found an adult even less responsible than we were. The kids managed, or somehow they managed to connect to a guy in the neighborhood. You're their adult supervision. Now, this guy helped them the next summer when they had another fire scene. Was he to a shoot. pyromaniac, by any chance? Well, he seemed to be, like as Eric said, less responsible than they were even, and helped them figure out how to set things on fire and just kind of egg them on to do more, it sounds like. So they did manage to continue shooting despite this incident. Now, believe it or not, this was not the most dangerous incident of the film. There was one, and now, slight spoiler alert, without going into too much detail, at the very end of the film, now, the bad guy in the film is by the name of Belloc. Eric was playing Belloc, and at the very end, there is a scene that requires Belloc's head and body Mm. to essentially explode in quite dramatic fashion, right? How on earth... Do you go about doing this? We're going to do that the same way Spielberg and Lucas did, and that is make a plaster mold of the actor's face, uh, fill the plaster mold with gelatin, and um, turn on a heat gun and, and melt it in case it, you know, blow it up. That's the plan. So Jason, who uh, has researched this, uh, buys plaster, and one fine morning on the back porch of my mom's house, I'm wearing a shower cap and. Uh, two cut straws stuffed up my nose and uh, a pear in my mouth because, you know, my character is supposed to be screaming. So I have to hold that open mouth expression for the requisite mm, 25 minutes for the plaster to harden. So I, uh, Chris and Jason lopped the plaster, the wet cold plaster around my, uh, my face and the uh, world disappears from view. And uh feeling a little claustrophobic, uh, breathing through one straw at this point, but I'm okay. All of a sudden, I feel this tremendous building heat. Turns out Jason had gotten the wrong kind of plaster. Uh, He should have gotten um, dental plaster, which uh, instead he'd gotten industrial plaster, which contains a heating agent to speed the drying. Uh, The guys uh, told me later that it was uh, too hot to touch. (laughs) Would have been nice. Have that option, but um, I'm just uh, trying to, you know, the mantra to myself all right, pain is temporary, film is forever. (laughs) And uh, time passes and finally cools down, and the plaster, three inches thick, is hard as a rock, it's ready to come off. So the guys reach around the side of my head to pry it off my face. All of a sudden, I'm in this excruciating pain around my eyes and, and eyelids. 
turns out Jason had made a, a second mistake that day. You always, always want to put Vaseline on the eyelashes and eyebrows of the subject. Otherwise, um, you get what happened to me. Uh, mine were embedded in the plaster, and they were not coming out for anything. Compounding this problem, I have no means of telling Chris or Jason any of this. All I can do is just grope in the air and, Eric, what? What's going on? And finally, uh, I, I reach, I find Chris, I think, and I run my finger across his eyebrows and eyelashes, and they figure it out. So I hear them go off in the distance and mutter amongst themselves. And I'm really scared that they're saying, you know what? I bet it's like a Band-Aid. I bet if you just rip it off real fast, it'd be okay. But had they done that, I'd, I'd have no eyelids today. Mercifully, they uh, didn't do that. Okay, uh, Eric Leanback, they had a, a hammer and a screwdriver using it as a chisel to try to break the plaster off my face. They break a hole around my nose and cool air rushes in. At that point, I know I'm not going to suffocate although that pear in my mouth is fermenting pretty good about now, but it's still not coming off. So I make a motion with my hands for a pad and paper. They give me one, and I write, hospital. <laughs> oh, my word. So Jason wow. finally calls 911. Now, keep in mind, Eric's mom, they're in the house. Eric's mom has no idea any of this is happening. She just sees a squad car pull up to the house, (laughs) has no clue. And well, he's okay. So it's fine. So it is a good story. He gets driven to the emergency room. They had to buzz off the mask uh, (laughs) with a cast remover. You know what they used to remove a cast. And then a, a surgeon had to use a scalpel to go around the eye area to get that. So he did lose all of his eyelashes and half an eyebrow. He said he had to pencil them in for a little bit. Whoa. Oh, my word. How did it all end, son? Well, keep in mind, this is happening between the ages of 12 to 19 for these three guys who are really spearheading this and, of course, all the others that were involved along the way. And I did speak to Eric about you changed so much during that time. You have different interests. He said, yeah, of course. All of a sudden, we had different interests. We were interested in girls, for one. And, of course, you're thinking about college. They were were loving this idea, right? Yeah, we think about college. There's so many different things going on. So I asked him, is there any point where you thought, oh, I've had enough of this. We're going to give this up. And he said they got to the very end of the project before something pretty heartbreaking for him happened. When we were almost over the finish line in the editing process, and Chris had actually um, staged an editing room mutiny of sorts. We had, uh, after a whole summer of editing, uh, we finally achieved picture lock. And it's like, great, we just have to uh, do the sound now, you know, add the sound effects, uh, add the patches of music. Shouldn't take more than two weeks. Chris is like, two weeks? Are you kidding me? Well, come on, you know, we, we've gone this far. And Chris was at that point just ready to be done. Um, and I returned uh, the following night to our editing room, really a closet that Chris and Jason and I had, had been editing in to find the note saying, Eric, movie's done, Chris and Jay. Like, done? I, I put it in to see what the work they had done the previous night. And there were just uh, music and uh, Swapped here and there without precision, and it wasn't the right music. There were entire stretches of silence where music should go. The what few sound effects were in weren't synced correctly. It's like, 
I drove out to Chris's place and, and beseeched him, come on, you know, we, we've come this far seven years. That's almost over the finish line. Let's do this right. And Chris said, stop lying and peeled out of his driveway, literally leaving me in a cloud of dust. We didn't speak for a long time after that, but the following summer, Last Crusade came out, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, the third in the trilogy, and I had cooled off by that point. I was was less angry with Chris, and I got an idea. I knew Chris, and I knew how inspiring our shared common boyhood hero was. So I I call up Chris, and I say, hey, you want to go see the third one? I know we're not talking at all, but shall we go see Last Crusade? Yeah, sure. Why not? So we go to the theater, and as I expected. Um, Chris was inspired. Uh, I got a call uh, later that week. Hey, you know, I've been thinking. (laughs) So we go back into the editing room, um, and this time it's right. And we take, give the sound the attention it needs, you know, have that satisfying punch sound effect when Marion decks in the bar, or the Wilhelm scream when the soldier flies out the back of the truck, or the soaring John Williams score. And uh, then it finally we had our, uh, our hometown premiere and Jason flew out for the last of it. And uh, it was a satisfying close to uh, an epic childhood project. For a man who's had industrial plaster surgically <laughs> attached to his face, he deserved to yeah. see the ending that right? that film warranted. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that would have been for him for a whole year? Two weeks left of work to go. And that opportunity has been robbed of you. All of a sudden, you're seven years of hard work. I mean, the fact that he was able to be so gracious to just call his buddy Chris up a year later and say, hey, come on, let's go check out this movie. And then eventually they did finish it. It It's a nice ending to the story. I asked him how it felt to finish the project because you put so much time and energy into something. Is that bittersweet? Do you kind of miss it? He said every year for his birthday during those years when he blew out his candles, every year he would wish that that would be the year that they would finish. That's how badly they wanted to finish this project. He said it seems so impossible, but when they finally reached that moment where they were at their screening, he said he felt a sense of peace. And he said it was a real relief that all of that work wasn't for nothing. You know, I'm often asked, okay, what bit of advice would you give someone having gone through this this strange uh, journey? I would sum it up in two words, always finish. If we had not finished, it would have just been a box of any tapes in somebody's basement. And, uh, and I wouldn't have had the extraordinary experience of traveling the world and, and meeting so many people who <laughs> actually related to it. Turns out there were a lot of kids playing Indiana Jones in their backyard. We just took a little further. Brilliant. Absolutely yeah. inspiring. No, there's an innocence to it all. Yeah, but Absolutely. it also it's a great message as well. Like, you know, if you start something, make sure you finish yeah. it. And what he got out of that in the end is he met his childhood hero. He had a childhood dream come true because he said while they were making it, they joke kind of like, wouldn't it be great if somehow we finished this at some point? Steven Spielberg would actually find it. It was like, you know, like a fantasy almost. Mm. And then they'd be like, okay, no, no, get back to drawing the hieroglyphics in the basement, you know? (laughs) And it just so happens years later, they have this VHS tape. They don't promote it or anything. Somehow it gets around to this film buff who gets it in the hands of Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg writes a letter to Eric. I mean, Eric got quite emotional while talking about this. He got really quite worked, even now, decades later from this happening. And it was sort of just saying, you know, what a beautiful tribute to the movie. And it was just really complimentary. And then... 
the, the movie continues to gain momentum, and Steven Spielberg invites them to come down for a face-to-face meeting. So they That's go amazing. to Universal. They meet him in person. He's like, hey, boys, invites them in, shows them some footage that had been cut from the movie that, didn't be, that wasn't shown. He said it was like knowing that moment of meeting your childhood hero, and then you knew that you picked your hero right. He oh, just has him. the best things to say of Steven Spielberg in that and that encounter with him. So if you do want to check out that film, there's two opportunities. You can go to Netflix and watch the documentary of the making of this film. But if you actually just want to see the film itself, go to ericzala.com and you can get a copy of what these kids created. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani, and Robbie Greenfield, and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.